It is my hope that we have read this passage enough that you almost don't need to look. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, this is our final message on the church's shepherds. And given the massive importance of this topic, in some ways, I feel like a mother as her child is walking out the door to go out into the world kind of desperately crying out all the advice and counsel from the past two decades in the 30 seconds that it takes to walk to the car, just yelling things out like, like, don't wear your socks for a whole week and remember your allergy medication and don't answer emails that start with, you're the lucky winner and don't play video games instead of doing homework. Read your Bible every day. Eat healthy meals, not junk food. Don't procrastinate on everything. Be respectful to those in authority. Remember your sunscreen. Pray every morning. Don't jack up your credit card. Iron your shirts. Change the oil in your car. Don't use bleach in the wash except for whites. Pork has to be cooked all the way through to the son. Don't marry Barbie to the daughter. Don't marry a loser. Be faithful and useful in your church. And above all, as the car door slamming, call me. In other words, you're trying to summarize, remember everything I've taught you and your life will be blessed and filled with good things from the Lord. In the same way, if the church of Jesus Christ will stay true for decades and decades to a right view of leadership, the life of the church will be blessed and filled with good things from the Lord. And more importantly, the church will be effective as the members are conformed to the image of Christ. Wouldn't you agree that it's time for the church to stop messing around? We don't have time for this anymore. We don't have time for experimenting. We don't have time to be seeker-sensitive. We don't have time to try to attract people with programs. We don't have time to try to provide entertainment. We don't have time. Because those in the world that are giving the unholy trinity of mandatory masks, mandatory vaccines, and critical race theory, they don't care about those programs. They just want to see if you will serve the Antichrist of our day, which is all that is ungodly and unholy. There's only one thing standing between the world being torched by God and His grace, and that is the church. We're here. We're here to do a job, and it is time to stop being like the world, to stop resembling the world in any way, shape, or form at all. It is only when the church is different that the church is effective. And at the top of that list must be our leadership. That's why this is so important. And my prayer is and has been that our leadership, current leadership, our future leadership, and we as a whole church will heartily embrace God's will for the shepherds of the church. And why is this important? 
Because as the shepherds go, so goes the church. When the shepherds give in to the unholy trinity, when the shepherds give in to what the world wants them to do, then the church is done. We, as a local body, we know this from Revelation 2 and 3, we are considered by Christ as a group. There is knowledge in heaven of Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. And we will give an account. And so, because as the shepherds go, so goes the church, we're beginning one final look at this topic, and I feel like the mom just yelling out advice on the way out the door. We've spent the last two messages now getting to the categories of qualifications. We've categorized these as a sacrificial desire, a God-honoring home, a long-range perspective, an inclusive love, a heavenly focus, and a seasoned wisdom. I'd like to finish out this series looking at the most important category of these qualifications, and we'll call this a biblical authority. A biblical authority, and this is all we'll do today, and this category will be represented by the final two qualifications we see in this list in 1 Timothy 3, that the elder must be sober-minded and must be able to teach. And we'll examine those in a moment. This past week, a church posted an advertisement for one of their pastoral leadership positions, one that would be directly involved in discipleship. Here are the qualifications. He must love Jesus. Okay, they're looking for a Christian. I guess that's a good place to start for a pastor. He must love people. That's good. Again, they're choosing from every single Christian on earth. He must be, quote, a builder and leader who is energized by an opportunity to shape and build a thriving ministry. So I guess he has to be energized. He must be organized. He must have experience. And he must be, quote, culturally relevant and high energy. That's the end. This is a fairly typical job posting for a pastoral position. This one happens to be in youth ministry. But what's missing from that picture? What's missing from that picture is the actual one qualification that he needs to have. A knowledge of the scriptures and the theology derived from the scripture and the ability and the training to teach and train others with competence, skill, and diligence. It's missing. That's what I'm talking about. That's a church that's messing around. That's a church that's playing church. I suppose we could remain detached and not worry about this, except that this is a job posting from a church here in Bakersfield. And that list of qualifications is really about as far from what the New Testament says a spiritual leader, a shepherd in the church can get. It's not even in the right universe, especially in the realm of missing the most vital element and ability to rightly handle the word of God. And so our final category of qualifications, a shepherd in the church must exhibit what we'll call a biblical authority. And so we'll start with the qualification found in verse 2. An overseer must be sober-minded. Sober-minded. And on the surface, this is exactly what you think it is. It's sometimes translated temperate, and at its base meaning, it speaks originally of somebody who abstains from alcohol, somebody who doesn't indulge in alcoholic drink. This has already been covered, though, in verse 3, that he's not a drunkard. And so we take the more general meaning, that's, it's a very common usage, that to be sober-minded means to be level-headed. It means to be level-headed. It means to be self-controlled in the area of being thoughtful, of being logical, of thinking. 
Just a few verses down, we we see the same qualification in verse 11, demanded of women in the church who have influence as servants. They are to be sober-minded, level-headed. In Titus chapter 2, verse 2, older men in the church are to be sober-minded, level-headed. So what does this mean? Well, in the context of the able to teach qualification here in the same verse, 1 Timothy 3, 2, it means that he doesn't think rashly. He doesn't think emotionally, but he thinks and therefore acts, what? Biblically. He doesn't lean heavily on worldly wisdom. Instead, he leans heavily on the fact that by the time he becomes a shepherd in the church, he's used to filtering everything through his vast and expansive and extensive knowledge of Scripture. This is second nature to him. To say, as we've said in previous messages, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? That's like breathing to an elder or it ought to be, that in any and every area of the ministry of the church, he can answer the question, why are we doing this, and why are we doing this in this way? He can answer this from his knowledge of ecclesiology, his knowledge of Christology, his knowledge of theology proper, his knowledge even of eschatology, of the end times, what the church is to be preaching and doing in light of the end times. Why is this so important that the shepherd of the church Be level-headed and think biblically. Well, because the shepherd is given by God an authority to speak directly, to speak commandingly, to speak firmly, to speak confidently into the lives of all under his spiritual care. Titus 2.15 says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. But the elder, the shepherd, he loses his authority, he loses his right to speak when his logic and when his reasoning and his shepherding is based on anything other than what the Bible says. You have every right as a member of the church of Jesus Christ that when an elder says to you, well, you know, in my experience, you have every right to say, hang on, I don't want to know about your experience. I want to know what the Bible says. You have every right to say that. Listen to these reminders of the responsibility which the shepherds carry In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Paul describes himself and others called to the ministry of the gospel. He says, this is how one ought to regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, meaning the truth of the Bible. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful to what? To steward, to care for, to manage the truth. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul describes the basic process of developing leaders, and he says this, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You notice that the understanding of the word of God is something that is entrusted. Why is it entrusted? Because they'll have authority and they can lead the church astray if they drift from the singular source of authority that we have, and that is the Bible. In Hebrews 13, 7, we see that the very core definition of a shepherd really has one highest component. Hebrews 13, 7, we're commanded, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. That's what a leader does. He speaks to you the word of God. In John 21, Jesus told Peter three times how to be a shepherd of the church of Jesus Christ. He said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The very definition of shepherding The church is giving spiritual food and giving sustenance. 
a number of weeks ago in the ninth message in this series, and I know you remember that right off the top of your head, I warned that one of the biggest fallacies that church leadership can fall into is that the wisdom that they bring from the world becomes their primary qualifying factor. Did you catch that? That's a fallacy. The wisdom they bring from the world is not a qualifying factor. Now, I want to review that point for a moment. Yes, life experience can be helpful and it's useful, but the fallacy can happen when elders begin relying on that practical experience to make spiritual decisions or to form positions or arguments based on anything other than what the Bible says. Of separating decision-making from the Bible. In fact, we said this, to make assertions of truth or to give a position or a direction without giving a sound biblical argument is the mark of a false teacher. This is true, but I have not backed it up with Scripture. That's a false teacher. And so it's imperative that we're careful in our directing of the church. And you may recall that I mentioned that I had the privilege of sitting in a pastoral ministry class with the eminent Dr. Alex Montoya. And he said this to the seminary pastoral ministry students. He said, quote, The ultimate downfall of a church is pretty certain when the elders start making decisions based on opinion, personality, or personal preference. If they are united, the whole church will fail. If they are split, the church may split. If they are split long enough, you as the pastor may experience fight or flight. This is very true. And so it's important that the elders understand the basics of forming a biblical position. And I gave you a short outline of what that looks like, and I think it's important for you to know. Here's a short outline of what it looks like to form a biblical position. Debate or discussion is not a substitute for study. A group of men sitting around talking about something can be dominated by things other than biblical truth. They can be dominated by uh, emotion, time pressure, personality, presuppositions, assumptions. And it may be that the loudest guy just overwhelms the others and the others say, all right, fine, that's our position because we're sick of listening to you. It's not a substitute for study. How about this one? A verse or a series of verses that you quote don't necessarily form an accurate biblical position. I have told you many times that I can show you 41 places in the Bible that proves that God hates dogs. No context to that, though. Grammatical and word analysis of major texts matter. And if you don't know how to do that, then learn. The context of any major text matters. You can't just throw out a Bible verse without understanding the intent of the author, the the recipients, what the intent of the whole letter was, and so forth. A position must be based on multiple reasons from Scripture, not just one. Alternative views should be considered fairly and evaluated. This includes assessing the strengths and the weaknesses of alternative views. That's only fair. Personal stories or anecdotal examples do not constitute a legitimate position. Well, I know an example of someone who, yeah, that might strengthen your argument, but it cannot form an argument. I can tell a thousand stories to to support an opinion I have. And there must be a line of reasoning which can be followed beyond just a bunch of proof texts. I'm going to get to a practical way this is worked out in the church shortly. I'll just give you kind of a behind-the-scenes look at how Elders form biblical positions on issues and will just for your own interest. But why is this so important? Why go to that level of detail? Why worry about get, trying to get it right? Why does that matter? Isn't it good that we just all love Jesus and all hang out together? Isn't that what we want? 
This is important because the sheep of God's flock, this is you, you're built by God to follow what your shepherds say. That's how you're built. It's how you're built. And so we'd better be on track or the whole church is misled. And if you don't believe me, recall this, these two verses. Hebrews 13, 17 says to obey your leaders, submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Why do I have to give an account for the whole church? Because you followed what I said. James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because sheep follow shepherds. So what's the outcome? What's the purpose? What's the result of being level-headed, sober-minded? Well, the outcome, the purpose, is expressed in even more detail in the second qualification that we'll put under a biblical authority. Verse 2, an overseer must be able to teach. Able to teach. Didacticus. You hear the word didactic in there. In other words, he's didactic in his ability. This is the singular skill that's required for the shepherds of Christ's church. It's the one skill that's required. Now, I want to break this down into what we'll call able to teach in a general sense and able to teach in a specific sense. And and let me show you this. Turn with me just a couple pages over to Titus chapter 1. In Titus 1, we'll look first at the general sense of what it means to be able to teach. The general sense of able to teach, this is not necessarily referring to a natural giftedness in the area of public presentation and preaching of Scripture. Instead, this, is, this general sense has to do with the knowledge of Scripture and knowledge of sound doctrine, and it's used in two ways. So the general sense is used in two ways. Listen to the same qualification from Titus 1, verse 9, and here are the two ways, the two functions of this gifting and skill. Titus 1, 9, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So what are the two ways that the elder in the general sense is to be able to teach? First, to give instruction in sound doctrine. And second, to rebuke those who contradict. Or put it this way, tell you what's right and tell you what's wrong. This is the result of his, what it says here, holding firm. It's a word that means he's devoted to the trustworthy word as taught. It means that the elder isn't merely agreeable to the word of God. He isn't just a passive listener to the word of God. He isn't one that says, well, yeah, I know the word. I've been listening to preaching for a long time. No, I know the word because I've studied it. I've gotten into it myself. He's not just agreeable. He's not just passive. He's devoted to the scriptures and he's he's passionate about sound doctrine, which is revealed and based in the scripture. And this devotion has a result. The purpose clause here in Greek, so that, that gives the reason to give instruction and to give correction in light of proper theology, that which has been taught by the apostles and now recorded in the New Testament. Now, this is speaking of discipleship of people in the church, and it has a very clear implication here. The implication is that there is a smaller, more individual flavor to this, as indicated by rebuke those who contradict. If you have an entire church that's contradicting sound doctrine, I don't know what to tell you. That's not really a church. So to rebuke those who contradict most likely means going to small pockets or individuals in the church who are causing problems by their contradiction of sound doctrine. 
In other words, every elder is to be sound in their theology, hold firm to the faithful word as taught, and is to be able to, to be capable in explaining sound doctrine to someone in need of bolstering in their faith and willing and capable to refute those who contradict what is sound. In fact, this has implications for counseling as well. Turn to the next chapter, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. It has implications for counseling. Not only is the elder to be able to teach sound doctrine, they are to teach, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What does that mean? What is parallel to it? What is the natural outflow of sound doctrine? And then we have this famous list here in the rest of chapter 2 of what the older men and the women and the younger men and women of the church are to be all about in what? In their lives, in their character, and how they conduct themselves. So in other words, the teaching of sound doctrine, the correcting of false doctrine is not merely the ability to help someone have a better understanding of the gospel or a better understanding of Christology or of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, or eschatology, the study of the end times, or any other of the ologies, but also to more accurately live out the implications of that theology in your life. In fact, we see this able-to-teach requirement lived out, very practically speaking, in the church in the previous book, turn back a couple of pages to Titus to First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy two. And here Paul is giving instruction to Timothy on how he's to not just make disciples, but make disciple makers. Second Timothy two, verse one. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There it is, able to teach others also. What does this mean? This is being lived out by faithful men, reliable men, trustworthy men, men who value above all things the truth. The end of the chapter gives a picture of the teaching of the elder in a general sense. Look with me at 2 Timothy 2 verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. How many times throughout church history has a church member told an elder who's giving correction, you should mind your own business? You know what the correct answer is? You are my business. Your life is my business. That you come to your senses and escape the consequences of your own faulty theology, which is always lived out in faulty living. Did you catch that? Faulty theology is always lived out in faulty living. That's the natural outflow. This is the general sense of being able to teach, which is required of all shepherds. But there is a specific sense required of a few shepherds. Turn back a couple of more pages to 1 Timothy 5. Now let's be reminded of a distinction that Paul makes. The able to teach requirement goes for all elders, and yet there is a distinction. There is a grouping, so to speak. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, we've already looked in detail at this in the previous message, but 
My point right now is to emphasize two key words. First key word, especially. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This is a word that means above all, to an unusual degree. It means that there is a clear distinction between two functions of elders, that all elders rule or shepherd the church, but some, second key word, labor. It means literally to become weary with something. They exhaust themselves. They work hard at at what? Preaching and teaching. Now, just an interesting note here, the way Paul phrases this in Greek, a more wooden translation says this, the one who is laboring, meaning a continual effort, the one who is laboring in word and teaching. In word and teaching. And what does this mean? It's not strictly speaking of the word of God. It's strictly speaking of laboring at forming words, crafting words that then explain and teach the word of God. They labor at crafting words. And last time we were in this text, we saw that the right thing for the church to do is to financially support at a double honor level the ones who labor. Why? So they can devote themselves to the study and the presentation of God's word. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Just a little side note here. I told you I would tell you a practical way that forming biblical positions on issues uh, that come up in discussion or come up in the church, how we kind of do this. A good behind-the-scenes way to utilize, rather, is to utilize the, the training and the expertise of the teaching shepherds to at least form a beginning, to begin the process of forming a biblical position, which then can be looked at and bolstered and added to and tweaked by the other elders. That's a, that's a method that works. And even in my short time here at Grace, I've had occasion every once in a while to write short theological papers to help us as elders then have a basis to take a position or form a policy. You will notice we do something a little bit unusual in our church. We have what we call junior members, don't we? And you might go, well, I don't see junior membership in the Bible, but it is. Junior members are people who are still rightly, according to Ephesians 6, under their parents' authority, but also rightly, according to 1 Timothy 5, under the authority of their elders. So we made a distinction. We use the title junior members, but it's based on a clear direction from Scripture that parents have the ultimate authority, but yet they're still under the authority of the church. This came up because we had to take a position on when we will baptize children. Because you might say, well, a a 17-year-old who comes to faith in Christ, should we baptize them? Of course. How about 16? Of course. How about 16 or 15? Okay. How about four? Now it's almost infant baptism at that point, right? So we had to have a paper. We had to have a position. And we have specific guidelines now that we use. But you don't do that by having a discussion and say, what do you think? You do that by studying the Bible. Now, the scary part about the rest of this message is that I'm treading on my own job description. But what is the preaching and teaching shepherd supposed to do? What's the job description, so to speak? What should you, as the sheep of Christ's church, expect from the preachers of Christ's church? Some of this won't surprise you, but some of it might. I want to tell you what you should expect from the teaching shepherds of the church. First, you should expect knowledge. You should expect knowledge. Peter gave the sheep of Christ's church a command. 
in 2 Peter 3.18. It's an imperative. It's a command. He said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you'll notice this then. If the shepherd is presenting knowledge, then it's the responsibility of the sheep to grow, literally, to increase in the knowledge of Christ as revealed in the word. That if you're having a buffet of Bible knowledge presented to you, it is your responsibility to grow. Ephesians 4, 11 and following. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the what? Knowledge of the Son of God. You must start there. If you are going to be growing through the preached word of God, then you should expect that the preaching shepherd is growing in knowledge as well. I I know this is a cultural thing, but I really don't like the label, the pastor's office. Because an office is where you do busy work. I don't want to be in my office. I want to be in my study. I want to be in the place where I meet with God and I read books and I study Greek and I study Hebrew and I study all the things that I need to do to take 20 or 30 hours of study and compact it into an hour with you. You should expect knowledge. Second, you should expect from your preaching shepherds, you should expect the gospel. You should expect the gospel. In 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul told told Timothy right after his famous charge to preach the word that he is to do the work of an evangelist. This is in the context of preaching. That preaching should include a call to the lost to repent. If you are new at Grace Bible Church and you haven't heard the gospel in the last two weeks, something is wrong. We should be pointing to the cross, pointing to the cross, pointing to the cross over and over again. But on top of just a call to the lost to repent, every believer needs to be reminded of the gospel continually. It's the center core of our life. The gospel is our lifeline to heaven. The gospel is the truth that saved us. The gospel is the truth that we're to impart to others. And the gospel is our connection to Christ. It's our connection to the cross. Paul told arguably the most mature church in the New Testament, the church at Rome, in Romans 1.15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You should expect the gospel. What else should you expect? Third, you should expect exposition. You should expect exposition. You should expect that the preacher is exposing what the word of God says and what it means. Not merely using the Bible as a convenient, sanctioned proof book to further his own ideas. And by the way, this is the joy and the surprise and the delight of doing verse-by-verse exposition. The preacher simply exposing and explaining what the text says next. And you can't blame the preacher for it. Look, I didn't write it. That's the next thing that God says. I'm just telling you what it says. And never apologizing for the content of God's word. I heard a sermon by a local pastor recently, and he apologized for the content over and over again. Hey, what are you doing? Don't apologize for the word of God. You proclaim it. And you insist on it. You should expect exposition. When we say expository preaching, it simply means preaching that tells you what the text says and what it means. Fourth, you should expect correction. You should expect correction. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. 2 Timothy 3.16 all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. 
for training in righteousness. By the way, verse 17, sometimes we leave this out, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This isn't just a statement of the inspiration of Scripture. It's instruction to the man of God, a technical term for the preacher, to engage in reproof, exposing that which is false, and correction, giving that which is true instead. Or to put it this way, reproof says stop doing this, correction says start doing that. And what does it accomplish? Training in righteousness, meaning in righteous living. And I'll do one more, what you should expect. You should expect a defense of the faith. You should expect a defense of the faith. Oh, that preacher is too negative. I, I really just want to feel good when I hear a sermon. I don't want to hear what's wrong with the world. I don't want to hear why this latest book that's the number one bestseller on Amazon is going to lead tens of millions of people astray. I don't want to hear that. Well, you be the judge if the job of the preacher is merely to make all the listeners feel good. I'll just read the Bible to you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments. The Greek word for destroy means to destroy. There's nothing soft about it. It is ultimate annihilation. We annihilate. We just disintegrate arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, Now, I know that phrase, take every thought captive to obey Christ. I know we use that to say, I need to help my own thinking. I need to stop thinking negatively. I need to take my thoughts captive. That's a good application from the wrong text. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying, I need to take my own thoughts captive. He's saying, I'm going to take your thoughts captive. I'm going to take the wrong ones and throw them in jail and then replace them with the right ones. How about this one? The book of Galatians, Paul opens... This book, kind of like this, walking into a room with a lit stick of dynamite, dropping it and walking out. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Hello, by the way. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, point number one in my message is that what an introduction. But, Pastor, I just want to feel good when you preach. Or how about the gentle preaching of Jesus in Matthew 23? Jesus preaches a sermon that would take the skin off a snake. In fact, in verse 33, he calls out false teachers and he says, You snakes, you serpents, you brood of vipers, you baby snakes. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? There's a responsibility that the teaching shepherds have, and there's a responsibility to call out that which is in error, especially that which would threaten to undermine the life and the health of the church. There's enough error in the world that that's all we could do if we wanted to. And so we have to pick and choose carefully. But when it begins to invade the front doors of the church, that's when we put the bars up. That's when we put up and draw a line in the sand. When some say, well, I don't want to hear negativity, then I understand that. But listen to what God says the preacher does with the word. 
He said this to the preacher Jeremiah after he said, Jeremiah, go preach. He said in Jeremiah 1.10, God says to Jeremiah, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And here's what his preaching is to do. To pluck up, break down, to destroy, overthrow, and then to build and plant. You see, you can't plant the seeds of the gospel and of the delightful truths of the Bible until you've torn away the weeds that would keep it from growing. But over the years, I've learned a little secret. True believers love to hear a defense of the faith. They love to hear their pastor give voice to the frustrations of their own heart about the world in which we live. It makes you feel spiritually protected, spiritually safe and secure in what they have believed. So, You should expect knowledge. You should expect the gospel. You should expect exposition. You should expect correction. You should expect a defense of the faith. And we've already seen, when I read from Ephesians 4, with the result of preaching includes those elements, what what the result is, what it gives to the church. It gives us the unity of the faith, that our unity, our oneness, our togetherness is based in believing the same things about Christ and about the gospel. It's the unity of the faith, the body of belief we have from Scripture. That's what you should expect. Now, I remember my picture of the mother yelling out those last pieces of advice and as the last one is, call me, and the door slamming and the car starts and the kid starts to drive off. Well, once in a while, mom goes and jumps in front of the car and says, wait, I have more. Okay, this is me jumping in front of the car. I'd like to do one more thing with you this morning to close out this series. The church lives and breathes on its preaching. The case for this is so airtight as to be unimpeachable in this conclusion. You remember how I I, I said today that, uh, that this is like a mom running out the door to give these final instructions. Did you know that the Apostle Paul did that? The Apostle Paul did exactly that. In his closing words to Timothy, After decades of ministry together, after Timothy sitting at the feet of Paul countless times over the years, after Timothy hearing Paul preach, who knows how many sermons. Now Paul has been giving all kinds of instructions to Timothy as the shepherd of the church, as really his heir apparent of all that Paul has taught. He boils it down and he even puts an oath in his final instruction. After telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped with every, for every good work, with the, the words of his pen, the Apostle Paul takes hold of Timothy's hands. He looks him right in the eye. He makes him make eye contact. He gets face to face with him. And he ushers Timothy symbolically into the very courts of heaven so that there are witnesses of eternity to hear Paul's final oath-laden instruction. And Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul is saying, I'm charging you, literally I'm warning you to Caruso, proclaim aloud the word of God. And I do so with these witnesses, God 
the Heavenly Father, Christ Jesus, the Savior and the Judge of all men, the future coming of Christ to the earth, and the future reign of Christ on earth. And then Paul gives his sobering reason for this charge before heaven and the coming King of Kings. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, one of the things I noticed during COVID was that the attention level of our church went through the roof because it was time to stop messing around and looking at your watch and wondering whether lunch is going to burn. Nobody cared anymore. And so given that charge, I'd like to do one last thing with you this morning. You thought that was the last thing. That was the introduction to the last thing. (laughs) I think I've been here long enough that I could indulge myself just a little bit to give you some, a personal viewpoint. I trust you'll see it's based in scripture. I'd like to personally share with you how I think about preaching. Because I think about preaching 365 days a year. Every day of my life, it's a part of my thinking. In light of the sobriety and the seriousness of the charge that Paul gives to the shepherds of Christ's church, there are some axioms or or principles that I really have endeavored to see our preaching ministry built around. This is not in any order of importance, but I want to tell you these things that are important to me. The first one, I am not to insult the bride of Christ. I am not to insult the bride of Christ. What do I mean by this? Well, the preacher insults and harms the bride of Christ by dumbing down the scriptures. By acting like it's his job to edit God, to make sure that it takes no longer than five minutes to understand something important. It's insulting to the church to to assume that you only have a 20-minute attention span. If a topic or a point requires that we put together and explain a complex argument to prove that point, I'm not afraid to do that. Why? Well, you're intelligent people. You have the Spirit of God who helps us all to understand the Word of God. You have a hunger for the Word. Psalm 1 says the true believer delights in the Word of God. And so if a topic or a book needs to take a lengthy period of time, then so be it. This is the eternal Word of God. Why are we rushing it? What's the rush? The second axiom that's important to me, I must trust the Holy Spirit. I must trust the Holy Spirit. I found out on Father's Day that I was going to be a grandfather for the first time. I went and looked at the mirror. My first question was, how old am I now? And second question, does the church want a preacher that's like one step in the one foot in the grave and the other one on a banana peel? Does a preacher, does the church want a preacher that is the opposite of cool and hip? Don't laugh too hard at that one. (laughs) I must trust the Holy Spirit. See, it's the Holy Spirit who works through what? Through truth. Not through emotion, not through personality, not through good looks, not through anything worldly. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual Oh, this is what's so exciting about the Word of God. Some of you guys have gone out to Dave Dahl's place and had a little bit of uh, firearms training. I've done that as well. And one of his responses was, it's a good thing you're a preacher because I'm really not that good of a shot. Oh, but on Sundays, I'm a great shot. 
You want to know why? Because all I do is I point the word of God vaguely in your direction and the Holy Spirit hits his target every time. That's exciting to me. I have a 100% chance of success if I will just preach the word. There's a third axiom that's important to me. Today is the most important sermon you'll ever hear. Today is the most important sermon. I am to preach as if this is the most important thing you'll ever hear because at this moment it is. This is what God has sovereignly ordained for all of us to study this day. This could be my last opportunity to shepherd you and it could be your last opportunity to be shepherded. Every one of you will hear a last and final sermon on this earth. I'm to preach as if this might be it. There's a fourth axiom that's important to me. Preaching is an end in itself. Preaching is an end in itself. Preaching isn't just a means to an end. This isn't just a pathway. It's a destination. Preaching isn't just an educational time after which then you go and apply what you've been taught. It's so much more than that. It's a time where the spoken and the taught word of God is interacting with your mind and your heart. It's making you ask questions. It's giving you answers. It's convicting you. It's strengthening you. It is very much an interaction. It's an event in and of itself. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a huge push that now is considered normal. And this push plagues the church today, and that is the push to deformalize preaching to make preaching more of a conversation, to have a relatable contemplation over coffee and a donut. That's not preaching. They began avoiding terms like sermon. They began avoiding the the formality of a pastoral prayer. And instead of a pastor saying, our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, pastors come up and say, hey Jesus, our friend, how are you? All of this denigrates the fact that preaching is an event. It is a formal event. There is a drive. There is a passion. There is a focus to this. I will never wear torn jeans and a t-shirt to preach. Any more so than I would appear before God like that. Preaching is an end of itself. It is something that is happening to you at this moment. When Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and he, he preached to them what the Old Testament says about him, Later, when they were then allowed to know that this was Jesus, and as he vanished from their sight, Luke twenty four thirty two says, They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Meaning, wasn't our, weren't our hearts kindled and lit with the truth? Why? Because he opened to us the scriptures. Not just because it was Jesus doing it, but because it was Jesus opening the scripture. Preaching has import, it has weight, it has gravitas, it has seriousness. And may God help me if I ever come into this pulpit one time without that. There's a fifth axiom or principle that's important to me. Both quality and quantity matters. Both quality and quantity matter. John Calvin, during his ministry in Geneva, preached from the New Testament on Sunday mornings. After a lunch break, he preached from the New Testament or the Psalms on Sunday afternoon. Every other week, he preached from the Old Testament all the weekday mornings, and then the odd weeks he would spend preparing for the next week, meaning he preached 216 times a year. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, he preached the occasional late-night Monday evening service. 
He preached a Thursday evening service. On Fridays, he did a two-hour lecture for his seminary students. On Sunday, he preached a morning service and an evening service. Charles and Susanna had guests in their, into their home, often on Saturday afternoons, and he was famous for kicking everybody out. And he would say this, Now, dear friends, I must bid you goodbye and turn you out of my study. You know what a number of chickens I have to scratch for, and I want to give them a good meal tomorrow. Now, admittedly, both Calvin and Spurgeon had amazing genius minds that I don't have. But the point is clear. Both built tremendously effective ministries based on quantity of preaching. There's a sixth axiom that I try to live by, and it's important to me. The church's vitality hinges on preaching. The church's vitality, our health, hinges on preaching. How simple is that? How obvious? What a no-brainer. And yet the church for centuries continues to try anything and everything else to build vitality and health and effectiveness. If the word of God is preached, this trickles down to everything else. But if preaching is devalued, then everything else in the church now runs out of gas. It has to run on emotion or on tradition or on people pleasing or on customer service or on imitating worldly social programs. That's why our philosophy of ministry is the same for adult ministry, student ministry, children's ministry. Preach the word, apply it, and teach it. There's a seventh axiom that's important to me almost to the level of haunting me, to be honest with you. Preaching is the truest test of our actual bibliology. What do I mean by that? Preaching is the truest text, test of how we actually view the Bible. If our preaching is factual yet uninteresting, then that's how we view the Bible. If our preaching is emotional yet without content, then we view the Bible as a devotional guide to give us a zap of feelings for Monday morning. If our preaching is edited in terms of not presenting the whole truth of a passage, then we view the Bible that that not all of it is for every church member and we become, in practicality, Catholic. If our preaching is vitally concerned with connecting with the culture and with modern constructs and modern ideals, then we believe the Bible is outdated and in need of apology for its dusty historicity. Speaking of which, an eighth axiom that's important to me Only original context changes your life now. Do you catch that? Only original context changes your life now. Only preaching that first places you as the listener into the original context can change your life this moment. That the history and the background and the authorship and the original readers of the Bible, the intent of the author, these aren't dusty pieces of information that don't matter. This is everything. This matters, and without that understanding, the Bible then becomes a a thin, two-dimensional devotional book by which to preach milky sermons for anemic Christians, or as one has famously said, sermonettes for Christianettes. There's a ninth axiom I want to live by. I must develop your appetite for preaching. I must develop your appetite for preaching. This is done by stretching your minds, by asking you to actively listen carefully, by challenging you continually to make preaching a major priority in your life. When I first came to Grace Bible Church, by design, I generally preached about 40 to 45 minutes. The first thing we did was to add an evening service to double our preaching time, and now I routinely preach for an hour. That's normal. 
And you are to credit for this because you have developed your appetite for preaching. It's always a prayer request from mine. We see newer folks come in who have been fed milk for so long they forgot what meat tastes like. And to watch them feeling their way out, staggering out, and what just happened to me? What is this nut house that I'm in? And so we pray that as you're learning and feeling like you're being fed by a fire hose, that you catch up, that the dots begin to connect as quickly as possible. One more. I must preach to strengthen you spiritually. I must preach to strengthen you spiritually. One good reason for this is seen in the emotional grief of the Apostle Paul over those who had turned away from Christ. He said, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so the preacher is to equip the saints to make them strong. You need to be strong. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 14, says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the Christ, who is the head into Christ. Right now, our world is throwing false righteousness at you all over the place. How many professing Christians have I heard say, do these things because Jesus said, love your neighbor? They have fallen over. They don't know the gospel. They don't know the Bible. You must be strengthened. And so I'm bound by and I'm compelled by, and you should insist on this from any shepherd speaking into your life. We're bound by an oath given to the Bible teacher. This oath is found in 2 Timothy 2.15. Just listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You know what we get from that phrase, rightly handling the word of truth? We get our word orthodontist. Somebody who sets it straight. You have, as a church, a responsibility beginning right now, on that banner, you are the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, what is your responsibility? You are now carriers of the information of what the church's shepherds ought to be. Don't settle for anything less. Wherever you are, strengthen the church by strengthening her shepherds. Don't settle for anything less. You're the carrier of the truth. Make sure you're that impact as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now aware of our own frail humanity. Every shepherd at Grace Bible Church has failed you in a thousand different ways because we are sinners. We are under shepherds that are really nothing like Christ whatsoever except that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We have been justified by faith through your grace. Help us as the shepherds to be faithful to the bride of Christ who is so important to you that Jesus died for her. The bride of Christ for whom not only did Christ die, but he will defend and cherish and protect and build up. How firmly did the Lord Jesus say, I will build my church. 
We think of Ezekiel 34 and the, the danger that false shepherds and unfaithful shepherds are in under the judgment of God. We think of shepherds that fall by the wayside. Their minds become corrupt and they begin to teach things not found in Scripture because it's popular or because somebody wrote a book about it or because it might attract more people or because it, it makes people feel good. Instead of coming boldly yet fearfully into the pulpits of your churches and opening their Bibles and saying, Thus says the Lord. And let the chips fall. I pray for Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield, Lord, that when Christ returns, we would be found to have been faithful. I pray that as a church, even in these coming days that are growing darker and more wicked, that we would grow greater in our light and in our strength for Christ. May the shepherds of our church be men of boldness. May the sheep of the church be those who follow and who Spread the gospel and proclaim Christ in every sphere of influence, Lord. We pray you would bless our tiny efforts and that you would be pleased to reward us for our faithfulness, Lord. But it starts with the shepherds. Let us be faithful. Let this church be a church that is brave enough to hold their shepherds' feet to the fire, to be faithful to the word of God. And may Christ be honored and glorified through these efforts. And we pray in his name, amen.